If you're a parent, there is a phrase that I guarantee you you've heard. It's the phrase, it's not fair. In fact, if you work with children in any way, at some point you will hear the phrase, it's not fair. Sometimes that phrase is spoken out of a selfish self-centeredness and kind of, I didn't get my way, and so therefore, since I didn't get what I demand to get, the world's not fair. Sometimes, that phrase in a child and also in us as adults reflects more than just selfishness. It reflects the reality that we have within us a sense of what should be right and what should be wrong. And that somehow what we're seeing or what we're hearing, what's happening to us or happening to another person, just isn't right. Just not the way it's supposed to be. Sometimes we can feel that very deeply. There's the story of Buttercup Wesley and Prince Humperdinck. And Wesley and Buttercup are in true love. And we have a sense that when people love each other like that, they belong together. But if you know the story of Princess Bride, you know that at one point in the middle of the story, it doesn't work out that way, is Buttercup and Prince Humperdinck are standing together and it's announced that they're about to get married. And not Buttercup and Wesley. And if you watch the movie, you remember this scene. Grandpa, you read that wrong. She doesn't marry Humperdinck, she marries Wesley. And she's sure of it. After all that Wesley did for her, if she didn't marry him, it wouldn't be fair. Well, who says life is fair? Where is that written? Life isn't always fair. I'm telling you, you're messing up the story. Now get it right. Do you want me to go on with this? Yes. All right, then. No more interruptions. Just isn't right. It's not fair. Sometimes we do that to God. God, we don't like your story. Especially my part in it. And when God begins to tell us his story. And how we're involved. We say, that's not right. That's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not the way it's supposed to come out. Now, there's a lot of deep theological reasons for that. We weren't made for this world. We were made for for the Garden of Eden with perfect relationships and a perfect world that responds to us perfectly. We sense that. We're made in the image of God, and there is a, 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 a sense of rightness, a sense of propriety that exists within us. 
we say, God, this isn't right. God does say, yeah, okay. We need to admit that in this world, sometimes it's just not fair. It's just not right. It's not the way it's supposed to be. I've faced people many times have been in the midst of that struggle. I faced my grandchildren and my children when they've been in that struggle. And when it's the selfishness and the self-centeredness and they're crying out, it's not fair, and you hear that anger and demandingness, I don't want to respond comfortingly to that. But sometimes when my children have cried, it's not fair. They were right. And my heart broke for them. The sadness that they felt just overcame me. Recently, I watched my grandson as he was facing a very difficult situation. And in tears and in sorrow and in overwhelming frustration, he just cried out, It's not fair. And everything inside of me wanted to make it fair for him. And everything inside of me wanted to wrap my arms around him and I couldn't at that moment and say, child, I understand your hurt and your pain. And I wanted to be able to promise him someday it'll be fair. I can't do that in the world. Because I don't know in this world whether or not things come out fairly. Usually they don't. But there is an eternal reality where God comes and is able to say to us when we as his children in the legitimacy of the things we honestly long for, and we come and say, Father, it's just not fair. And God is able to come and to say, but it will be. I guarantee it. When we come to Isaiah chapter forty. I'm sorry, chapter 56. We read just a few weeks ago, just last week, that passage in which Isaiah proclaims to us. Are my glasses down there, honey? Could you? Thanks. As we're dealing with Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 56, in that introduction, We read this, verse 1. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does these things. 
We said the, that the word blessed there has the idea of being in a position, an envious position. That the person that lives in this way, the, the person that maintains justice and the person that lives in righteousness and the person that holds on to the covenant and the person who, who seeks to live a life that is pleasing to God, God comes and says, you are blessed. You are living out in a position that is to be envied by the world, by others. They, they, wanna, they look at you and they say, boy, I wish I had a life like that. And then Isaiah writes Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 3. Where two groups of people, and it could represent many groups of people, cry out and say basically blessed are you joking me are you conning me look at my life you think this is blessed you think people will envy this what I most long for in life I don't even have I I don't even taste it I can never have in this life How in the world can you call me blessed? What we come to understand and what Isaiah wants us to understand as we come into Isaiah chapter 56 and verse 3 is this. Sometimes life isn't fair. But we need to have a confidence and a certainty in the midst of that unfairness that when life isn't fair, those who, holding, those who are holding fast to God will know satisfaction. Put it very simply, in the end, God will make it right. To put it very simply, in the end, God will abundantly rectify what we long for and lose in the midst of this life. You see, as Isaiah is writing, as he's talking to us and he's preparing us and he said, blessed is the man that that lives this way. And he's about to talk or woman or or child or anyone. You're blessed if you live this way. And then he's going to talk about the struggles that are coming to come up. And we'll talk about those in the weeks to come. But in verse 3, he quotes the questions of two groups. The first is literally the sons of the foreigner. Let no son of a foreigner, foreigner's there, but you'll understand why I say son of in a few moments. But he says, let no son of a foreigner who has, who has bound himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Then he says, and let not the eunuch complain. I'm only a dry tree. He chooses two people to represent us. In those times when we want to say, God, it's not fair. And what you need to understand as we see these people, these are wonderful, righteous people. 
These are, these are good people. They're ones that we would choose to be elders of our church. They're, they're ones that we would choose to be leaders of our, of our women's ministry. They're ones that we would choose to, to, to be the, the, the heads of the, the ministries of, of whatever. They're, they're good people. And that goodness, we don't have time this morning, but as you read down through over and over again, God's reminding us these are, the, these are the people that are holding on to the covenant. They have a relationship with God. These are the people that are trying to live out righteously. They're trying to live in obedience to God. They're trying to do all of that, and they struggle, and there's difficulty. Yes, but these are righteous, not in the sense of perfect, but righteous meaning living a life in the direction towards God kind of people. But their lives aren't fair. The first group that we come in contact with is those that feel like total outcasts. Literally the sons of foreigners. In a few moments we're going to look at the passage in Deuteronomy. But God says of these people, even if, and this is in the Old Testament, not the New, even if they keep my covenant, even if they hold on to my covenant, even if they keep my laws, if they are sons of Amorites or sons of Moabites, they may not enter my How would it feel for someone to come to you and say, because you were born this race, this people, you can't come to church? Now, there was a time in our history when people did that. How do we feel about that now? These people felt like outcasts. So the the son of the foreigner, the son of the Moabite, the son of the Amorite, comes and says, God, are you going to reject me? Do I have no place in a relationship with you? Will I be this outcast for all of my life? Is there no hope? God, will even you not want to have a relationship with me? We know people that feel that way. Sometimes I feel that way. God, would you ever want to be in a relationship? Or am I forever an outcast? But the second group is the group that I call the destitute. The first group has a legitimate longing to belong. All of us are created with that longing. All of us want to belong. And let's face it, in this world there will be times when we're kept at arm's length. You can't belong here. 
You're not smart enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not rich enough. You're not nice enough. You're not good enough. You're simply not enough. And every one of us has experienced that at some time. And we long to know we belong. But the other is those that are hopelessly destitute. That because of something in their life, they will never experience what every heart longs to experience in this life. And the example is the eunuch. We know what a eunuch is, someone whose ability for being a man is removed, crushed. And that was often done, sometimes it was done as sort of pagan ceremony, but very rarely, and I don't think that's what, what Isaiah is talking about here. He's talking about those who were called into service as to the kings, particularly of the Greeks and the pagans. They were castrated. And the eunuch says, I'm just a dry tree. Let me put that into words we understand. I will never know children. I will never know a posterity. I will never have a heritage. After I'm gone, no one will remember. God, is that what you want for me? It's not fair. And though we may feel that somewhat as a pain in our, in our society, and we do, In the ancient society, not to have children was considered a curse. So the poor eunuch is not only not able to enjoy what every person longs for, but he's also an outcast. And at that moment, what's going on in verse 3 is these Groups of people, and at times all of us, are coming to God and say, God, this doesn't make sense. Blessed? Are you kidding? Psalmist in Psalm 73 faced this, and I won't read the whole thing, but when you get a chance, read it, where he just says, "Surely surely God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart, surely those who keep his covenant are blessed. It's not there, but it's in Isaiah. He says, but as for me, my, as for me, I almost fell. And to summarize what follows is, I looked around me and I said, you say the righteous are blessed, then why do the wicked live so well? It's not fair. And you know what? He's right. And if this world was all we had, we'd have to admit God is an incredibly unfair God. Why would I trust him? 
it gets worse because, as we mentioned, Deuteronomy chapter 23 and verses 1 through 3 says these people were made outcasts, were rejected based on God's purposes. They weren't allowed in the temple. And God had a purpose, and we don't have time this morning to talk about why was that, and God trying to demonstrate what holiness is, and that his, his holiness and his presence requires perfection. And the, I mean, we don't have time to explain all of that. But basically, what this person is struggling with is, God, you made me this way. It's God who says, No one who has been emasculated by crushing or cutting may enter the assembly of God of the Lord. No one born of a forbidden marriage nor any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. No Amorite or Moabite, the son of these foreigners, or any of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord, even down to the 10th generation. God, it's not fair. God says, you're right. You're right. But that's not the end. If it's not for eternity, God is the most unfair person in the entire universe. We live in a world that leaves us at the end without eternity saying it wasn't fair. But thankfully Isaiah doesn't stop there. Because he brings the word of the Lord. He brings a message. He brings a father who wraps his arms around his child and he says to his child, I know it's not fair. I understand, but I'm going to make it fair. I'm going to make it fair. I will use my infinite wisdom, my infinite power, and my infinite existence to make it fair for all of eternity for my children. If you're not a child of God, that promise is not yours. But if you're a child of God, you have a God, a Father, who wraps his arms around you and says, I'm going to make it fair. Beginning in verse 4, he does that in the first group that he deals with as he comes and says that God will eternally compensate those who hold fast to him. God will eternally make it fair. God will eternally rectify whatever we are asked to do without here for his purposes because of our failures, because of just generally a fallen world. Whatever the reason, God says in the end, I will make it fair to those who are my children and continue to walk faithfully before me. The first thing he says is to those who are destitute. He says, I promise an abundant satisfaction. The eunuch could come and say, God, I will never have a posterity. I will never have a heritage. 
I won't be remembered after I'm gone. I have nothing to, no, no one to pass on my life. Nothing. What, what's going to happen when I die? I'm gone. If there's no eternity and this is it. One of the greatest longings all of us have is to pass something on to another generation to live beyond us. That's God designed. And God comes to the eunuch and the words are astounding. He says to him, if I took this away, or for whatever reason you had to live without this, that was the legitimate cry and longing of your heart, the day will come when I will give you more of that than you can even imagine. He says to the eunuch, there in verse 4. He says to the eunuch who keeps the Sabbath, who, who chooses to please me, who holds fast. And the idea of Sabbath is keeping the old covenant. And he says to them, I will give in the temple, the very place they're excluded from. This is the eternal com- temple. I will give to them within my temple a memorial and a name that will last forever and is better than sons and daughters. The literal words there are a hand and a name. Yad Vashem. Some of you may know that phrase. It's a Jeopardy question. The answer is Yad Vashem. What's the question? What's the name of the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem? They took the name of the Holocaust Museum right out of this passage in Isaiah. It's Yad, hand, Va, Wa, and Shem, name. A memorial and a name. One of the most poignant parts, I've never been there, but I would long to go there. When you, when you are walking through the Yad Vedem, there's a place where there's a memorial to the children who on this earth will never know a posterity, who will never have an inheritance whose names are basically forgotten. And when they built the memorial, they proclaimed, that's not right. So we want to find a way to provide them a posterity, an inheritance, and a remembrance. And so when you enter the Yad Vashem, you walk by a whole gallery of children's pictures, all of them killed in the Holocaust. And as you make your way towards this particular room, it becomes dark. And you hear this eerie, eerie music. And then you walk into the room of mirrors. 
And in the room of mirror, there's one candle in the middle. Surrounded by mirrors, mirrors that begin to reflect that candle infinitely out. Looks like a room of stars, all from the one candle. And as you walk through, you'll hear the name of one of those children read. Their age and their country. This is the Vajishem. Moisei Kapustian, 13 years old, Ukraine. Emmanuel Yakovetsky, 5 years old, Ukraine. Bernd Kostman, Benchishisre, Tsarfat. Those that created this memorial understood it wasn't fair. And in an incredibly poignant way, they said, we want them to be remembered. What their souls would have longed for, we want to find a way to recognize satisfy. Beloved, God does exactly the same thing, but not just in a memorial that may last a few hundred years, not just in a place that only those who can pay the admission, I think it's free, but who go to Israel and walk through it can see. God says, if I've called you to give up something, if I've called you to have to struggle with something, if because of living in a fallen world of sin and, and, and struggle that you've had to struggle with something and something your soul longs for at its very depth, the most legitimate thing, if it's taken from you, I will restore. I will provide. Several years ago, I had to stand with a family whose child died in just a few days. Healthy child, incredibly, you know, vibrant and alive child. And over the period of three or four days, caught a disease. And by the end of the weekend, was dead. And the parents screamed, it's not fair. They were right.
I remember preparing the funeral and thinking, what do I say to them? And then I remembered that God says what I've taken from you, I will repay in abundance. And I sat with the parents, we talked about eternity, when they would experience the, the fullness of their child, they would, they would see the development of their child, they would have eternity to see their child, even the thing they longed most to see their child grow, to see them grow into eternity. And there was hope. Beloved, sometimes God says, yeah, in this world we're going to have to face the unfairness. But be assured of something. I'll make it right in abundance. We often get a taste of it here. with it being satiating into eternity. But the second group is that outcast. I want to feel like I belong. Every one of us wants that. The teenager in high school, you you want to be a part of the group, whatever group that may be. You know, the the athletes, the, the cool kids, the... You know, whatever it might be. When I was in high school, it was the hippies. God says, you know what? At times you won't belong. But God's message to that son of the foreigner, that child of the outcast, is if you are in me, you belong to something greater than anything you can ever imagine. You belong. When I'm feeling lonely to know I'm the child of the king. When I'm feeling like no one could ever want me again, I remember there's nothing that separates me from the love of Christ. And I will spend eternity with God's folks rejoicing and celebrating and enjoying. It's a message we give, but it's also a message we need to remember. When we have the person come into our church that's new, to remember we have a message of belonging. When the person is standing out in the foyer or by themselves, we have a message that says, you belong. When we come into the auditorium and someone's sitting there by themselves, we have the responsibility to remind them they're not alone. And to remind them that one day, however outcast a person may feel, if they are in Christ, they will know total, complete, absolute, experiential acceptance. 
if God requires us to face something unfair, be certain he will repay in an abundance beyond our comprehension.